Hi, welcome to Mobile Interactions Now, the podcast where industry pros share firsthand experiences on making mobile interactions work. I'm Kevin, and I'm part of the team here at Tintech. On today's episode, we have the conclusion of our conversation with Frank Spillers, the founder and CEO at Experience Dynamics, a leading UX consulting firm with Fortune 500 clients around the world. So here's part two of our conversation with Frank. Take it away, Gene. Frank, welcome back to the show. In our previous episode, we touched on some of the overall challenges that UX designers and service designers have to work with together with their business teams. In this episode, I would like to delve deeper into how to get better at applying some of the things we are learning from the new type of interactions between businesses and consumers many of them triggered by the pandemic. What worked and what didn't and what we should be doing more of? Uh, well, thanks for having me back on the show, Gene. It's uh, nice to nice to be back. And uh, to ask the question of how well are we doing our current CX, you know, mar- which is a marketing capacity, UX, which is usually a product-focused capacity, or service design, which is a kind of holistic way to, to, to develop both service and product and digital experiences and CX and every channel together. How do you know? And then from a COVID perspective, what do you do as a starting point? What's the way to to figure out if you're missing any opportunities in terms of your COVID experience, post-COVID experience? And, you know, to me, the the answer to to those questions is you've got to find out. It's sort of like where we leave, you know, with measurement, that idea of measurement. And you've got to always be listening ear ear on the ground so-called customer listening posts you know we do this anyway with analytics with sentiment analysis we do it online with social media you know no marketer would be caught dead without having engagement or analytics you know behind a social media campaign so in with ux and service design we need those kind of qualitative those probes if you will um, we need constant user testing uh, we need service testing we need to be able to give customers diaries over time and track their their movements across channels over like a two week three week period and measure um how well and and this is even without an existing solution this is like i mentioned that you have to do that once you actually design things right find the right problem create a service blueprint if you're doing the service and then measure it and roll it out and so forth, right? Test it and so forth. But you can start there as well, right? So you can start with, okay, let's measure what's our existing experience like? Where are the breakpoints? Where are the broken touch points? You know, where's the channel falling down? You know, you interview the customer and they go, well, I, you know, for an example, they go, I I don't feel comfortable when I dealt with their online support people, they were really rude, or I didn't understand them, or they didn't understand me, or I've never had a good experience. I want to go talk to someone in person. Well, that's not just a case of, you know, let's make sure that they have a good experience once they get to the store or to the organization, to the building. But why did the customer feel uncomfortable in the other channel? So sort of backing up and looking at their holistic. And then what were they trying to do? Why couldn't they just do this online? We offer an online way to do it. When you were talking about this, it just reminded me of one of the case studies from your work, actually, uh, Wells Fargo Contact Center. And I found it really interesting how you guys noticed certain segment of uh, customers are happy. The business people were being served very well. 
and when the the consumer part of it wasn't. Can you tell us a little bit about how to even think about it? Maybe the, the segments are the problem or how to approach what type of study you apply to solve these problems? Yeah, the, the type of study is we use the same, which is behavioral research, which is ethnography or chair. In this case, it was chair side visits with the Wells Fargo. They call it phone banking. It's basically customer support for small businesses. So it's a small businesses call in. And what we literally did is just sat beside the, the uh, call center people and plugged into their live calls and sat and listened to them all day long for like an entire week. And so that's an example of this kind of behavioral research where, you know, there is no focus group, there's no survey, you're not really, you're not asking them for their opinions, this is, that's market research, those two techniques. So you want to do like this realistic day in the life, walk in their shoes, chair side, whatever you want to call it, that comes from the um, discipline of anthropology. And it's used in UX, ethnography is a regular UX technique, it's, it's just a kind of like, think of it as people watching, but calculated people watching. So in that story with the Wells Fargo, the thing you're talking about is there was kind of almost VIP. So if there's a problem, it gets pushed to a manager or a team of managers. There are various degrees, but the customers don't know that. It's a little bit like IT, how they have like five degrees of escalation, you know, and you don't know where you are. <laughs> so you're talking to like tier one and there's, and someone at tier four can handle it. Someone at tier five can just snap their fingers and it's gone, the problem. But you're muddling your way through tier one and then through two tier, tier two, and then you get angry and you have to ask for a manager. So tier three comes in, then that manager doesn't help you. And this happened with Rackspace, actually. Rackspace built their company on, you know, sensational, I think, fanatical support. They, they service marked that, right? Fanatical support. And they had it and it was good and it was true. And it was a shining light. And then they were bought by another company and that customer support like tanked it, but back at, so it's possible also to lose your traction. And that's why it's so important when you do this stuff, it's not just about getting excited about journey mapping or customer centricity. It's about managing all this in a program. And also this is required if you're doing inclusive design, which is making sure underrepresented users are brought into the process as well. But the funny story to end the Wells Fargo piece is that I, I'm as a, as actually a customer of Wells Fargo. <laughs> so I was, I was taking my own kind of personal notes uh, about which, and I actually met the, one of the, uh, one of the guys that deals with that VIP, that white glove service, which I didn't know about. <laughs> and I took his business card and I went back to my company and gave it to my CFO and said, if you ever need any help, <laughs> this is the guy to call. Trust me. So we all have this kind of anecdotal thing where just uh, when it works, it's really beautiful. As a business, how do you do that more systematically uh, in a more scalable way that this permeates to you know, more customers and more time? Mm -hmm. And I think this is where the whole design thinking and, and, and keep managing is happening. Is there a way to do this better? You see, the reality is most UX designers are fighting in their organization. Service designers are having to justify this weird, like, okay, we can't, we, I don't want to be stuck by your scope. Imagine, can you imagine telling that to somebody, a product manager or to a engineering director? Like, I don't want to be stuck by your scope. I need to look at the whole thing holistically. They'd be like, what do you know? We need to know. What are we developing? An app? Is it a mobile app? How many screens does it have? You know, and it's like you, so it requires a lot of 
kind of education, but also organizational participation, like inclusive design, requires that everyone be involved and everyone be doing it. Otherwise, you can't just sprinkle a little bit of accessibility or can't sprinkle a little bit of inclusiveness, um, DEI, just a DEI project over here, and then the rest of all your channels are excluding users or rubbing them the wrong way or committing bias and so forth and so on. So it requires that systematic approach. And yes, it is totally possible. But I wanted to touch on something you said about the AI approach. The thing you laid out is a classic AI approach, which is take someone who's performing really well, like maybe those people in the call center, and model them in terms of using them as a, as a training set for an algorithm. I would recommend against that approach. The reason I recommend against that approach from a UX perspective is that, you know, is a story of a system we were redesigning at Nike, that we were redesigning the system and the system had a total of six users, an internal system, total of six users. And this is a system that's used to track when athletes wear the swoosh. It's an internal system. It's managing this important thing, which is done through like AI and cameras or whatever. Um, this one woman basically designed the system. Then we went and talked to the other users. One of the users, the person had a, a cheat sheet. It was directions that the super user had written. The reason it doesn't work from a UX perspective is this cheat sheet that this person had, they never looked at it. So that's like user two of six or whatever, that person. And then we noticed it with the next person. They're like, oh, I, I just don't, this system is so difficult. I have, I have some training notes here. We were given a training and the training notes are right there beside the desk, but they're not being read. They're not being used. And it's like, what's that all about? So if you model the, the approach of that smartest or that high-performing area of your company uh, or channel, or whatever, you types. might, yeah, you might lock other people out mm -hmm. and then they can't figure it out, you know? I was talking with a Microsoft Dynamics uh, integrator. They were using our Conversations API connector because what they're doing is it's the same day trading scenario where the agent and the customer uh, relationship is very important because that transaction has to close on the same day. What they are learning, <laughs> to my surprise, is that there are some segments their first initiation of interaction is not a bot-based interaction. And the Asian has to actually send, because they are so loving the private message they've been getting every day, that you know, template-based, bot-based communication needs to have a human carrier <laughs> to send to them because that is what the end user is expecting. If it's an important enough customer that needs a dedicated Mm -hmm. um, Asian, have that Asian do exactly that, but just start embedding some of the things, the templates and, and links there mm -hmm. that, that leads to that bot-enabled yeah. interaction, should they choose it. Conversational UIs, as well as speech UIs, speech yeah. recognition, are extremely difficult to get right. In other words, they require a lot of very, very important UX work to be done. And there's a lot of known things and limitations about those systems and so forth and so on. And the, the people that have made them useful after many, many years and much money like Google and Amazon and so forth did a lot of things and also went through a lot of dead space, if you will, where, you know, for example, the Amazon Echo didn't understand accents until a couple of years ago, even though it's been around for, you know. I'm still not happy with it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's for an American male sort of Silicon Valley accent, which American white 
middle-class male accent, you know, and it's just like, it's even got bias where it'll recognize an English accent, but not a Scottish or Irish accent or Australian accent, but an English accent is okay. Anyway, to say that kind of conversation and speech require a lot of very, very important work. Same with bots. Bot interaction can just be miserable. I had an experience with Amazon last Christmas. I happened to be buying a laptop, not for Christmas, just was um, replacing a staff laptop in a kind of an emergency, but not that big of a deal, except it was during Amazon's rush period for, for Apple laptops. And instead of telling the truth about that, Apple, like, so Apple said, need three weeks or four weeks or six weeks to deliver. Uh, Apple said that. Amazon said, can get it to you in two days. So I ordered it and then it disappeared from my orders. And I was like, that's weird. I thought I did that. Maybe I was distracted. I'll do it again. So I ordered it again. It stayed in my orders for about 10 hours and then it disappeared. Like no trace of it. And I'm like, I thought I ordered that. You know, maybe... I'm sure I ordered it at least once. Maybe just, I don't see it. I really need this. Let me just get that ordered. Ordered it a third time. Now I'm like four or five days into, I should have had it already. Same thing again, disappeared. So I contacted support and it had the laptop there. It was the only record of it was in the chat bot. And I thought, aha, I did order it. Something's really <laughs> sinister here. So I, I, I selected that and they connected me to an agent. That agent put me to a second agent. That agent put me to a third agent. That agent put me to a fourth agent. At that point, I asked for the manager. And all I was asking was why, because I didn't, there was no money lost. There was no, it was Amazon just basically lied and they couldn't handle the Christmas fulfillment. I went through, I think, seven different operators and even the manager was not able to handle me and just pass me on to somebody else who was a lower level. And I thought, my God, what a complete disaster of a chatbot experience. So chatbots, like most people are not doing chatbots well because chatbot design is a whole discipline within UX. You have to do it right. And it, it does, yes, it, you're right. It does point to the problem of you know, AI modeling sort of expertise or actually trying to get automation to take over when it really should be a human hand. And so understanding where you have the opportunity to put a human hand, the machine's hand, human, machine, human, it's going to be a blended future. We're not going to just wake up and everything you order your latte by speech, you look at your phone, you look at the wall and it pays for the latte. You know, you think, you think a thought and it, you know, creates a 3D hologram that brings your friends together and you hang out. It's not going to be as futuristic as that, it, but it'll probably be more augmented, you know, back and forth. I actually look forward to that progression, knowing that something is going to go towards some direction. And this is my actually question for you. What do you want to see more of happening? Yeah, I mean, I've learned not to not to take my own experiences too personally and, you know, sort of like some other experts in the field just sort of bitch about, you know, technology. So it's not to me the beautiful thing is not a fixed technology. It would be nice if more and more organizations understood they also had this other modality, which is service design that they could use to holistically think about redesigning their whole ecosystem and the product service experience within that. Okay, so that would be one ask. But I think the bigger one relates to the book I'm working on, which is UX management. So how do you manage? So in other words, let's say you're like, okay, Frank, we heard you about service design. We're doing the damn blueprint and we're gonna go through the process. And so you bring, you, you, you know, you, you hire service designers or like some of these clients that I worked for years ago who are now hiring service design directors, you hire service designers, you figure it out, you integrate it, you, you launch a product, 
or or, in a, or a service or whatever, you fix it, you repair it, whatever, it comes out, oh, that's that was good. That was useful. We're seeing some value with that. How do you do it again? How do you, you know, and let's say then it's successful, it goes out into the marketplace, it mitigates a bunch of risk, it adds a lot of value. How do you do it again? How do you, then you start hiring more team, you're growing, you hire another 10, 15, 20 UX type folks, you even hire a few service designers. How do you get that entire team to work with the rest of the company doesn't understand a, a word of what they're saying, for one thing, right? It's like, what do you mean ch- touch points and you know, cross-channel interactions or orchestration or real-time uh, interaction management as a new category of analytics that's, that's come out? What do you mean by all that stuff? And what is it? So bringing to me, what I'd like to see is more organizations truly collaborating without silos and doing UX as a team sport, like in a way that actually helps improve collaboration and helps get a better business outcome for both the organization and the end user customer. So I lied a little bit. I do have a one little nosy question for you. Can you tell us just so that we we get to know you better? uh, What are the three things you do most on your phone? Well, I try not to use my phone too much, and that's a very deliberate strategy because I'm trying to uh, conserve my attention, which is, you know, a, a IT worker's 21st century dilemma. But the, the apps that I use a lot are Seconds is the name of the app. It's a timer, a custom timer app, and you can create your own timer. So I use that for various, various things. The other app that I'm on all the time is is YouTube or uh, a an app that removes the ads called Tube Browser, which is all right. That's not a plug for that because it sometimes takes a long time to, but it, it does kind of work eventually. But YouTube, I, I listen to a lot of, of stuff on my commute. And then I think probably the third most heavily used app would be probably, I'm going to say like WhatsApp or Messenger or something or Outlook, something like that. But I use Google Translate a lot. Um, I also use, because I work in different languages or, you know, um, speak different languages as well. So I'm using that like all the time to continue that learning. But I, I, I would think I would, the third one, I would leave the category open and say, I'm always looking for a new app that solves a particular problem, fills a particular need. For example, I just downloaded an app that's called Birthdays. And what I want to do is put all the birthdays and kind of take that off of Facebook because face it's one of Facebook's hidden features as they keep track of the birthdays and it's a user adoption, you go, oh, well, you know, like you don't remember, but it remembers for you. Even though it's nothing to do with the experience, it's actually a core emotional, social kind of, so I'm actually trying to create my own shadow app for that because I'm not on Facebook and I don't use Facebook at all anymore <laughs> after since like the last two years, I think. Um, so birth, so yeah, the last category is any app that kind of helps do something that either improves either a productivity or um, a personal wellness or a uh, social need. Sounds good. I think you're looking for something useful. And on that note, I really, really thank you. That was uh, plenty all packed in and, and, and two sessions we talked about. So I thank you again and good luck with your books. And we should touch base after the book is uh, released and off the press. Sounds good. Thank you, Jane. Thanks again to Frank Spillers for joining us today. You can find more about Frank at experiencedynamics.com. To find out more about Gene and Tintech, visit Tintech.com. Make sure to subscribe to Mobile Interactions Now in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, 
Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. On behalf of the team here at Tintech, thanks for listening.